out on an island. LGBTQ plus oral histories on the Isle of Wight. From coming out stories to going out memories, what is it really like to be out on an island? Out on an Island is an oral history project by Stone Crabs Theatre, supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Hello, I am Ines Sampaio and I am your host. In today's podcast, Franco Figueiredo interviews Rosa McComart. Rosa shares her memories of performing with the Pink Singers, fundraising around Europe, volunteering for the island's gay and lesbian switchboard, and so much more. Okay, so can we just kick off like talking about your childhood and how was it growing up? Yeah, I wasn't born on the island. I, I was born in London. Um, London was great. I mean, I really loved living in London because there was just so much happening for lesbian and gay people. And um, um, when I moved to the island, it was actually my partner's decision because she applied for a job at um, Cow's East... Uh, Cows High School, that's right. And uh, I was teaching in London as well at the same time, and I thought, I'm not going to teach when I go to the island because it's just too small. And um, and actually, after a couple of years of Anne teaching on the island, she realised it was also too small. We just kept bumping into her kids all the time. Um, we didn't feel like we had... We like feel like we were living in a goldfish bowl. Mm-hmm. So eventually she gave up teaching and um, retrained as a counsellor and then went to work for the prison for a while. And I bought a, uh, an investment building with some flats, which I just basically let out. And that's what I do for a living. So when did you move, move down? 2003. 2003. How was that? Relatively easy. Um, once we made the decision that we were leaving London, um, we looked around for you know, somewhere nice to, to buy, to live, and, uh, and we bought a couple of places. And, yeah, it was seamless really and it was great because I you know was living near the sea <laughs> you know that's really novel because when you live in London to get to the seaside it's you know it's a big deal but you know on the island you can just walk down the road and you're at the beach which okay. I found great. Were you out? Yeah oh, yeah okay. I was out. Uh, I, I was out from my teenagers really. Uh, I suppose I was the kind of person that couldn't hide it because I was too much of a tomboy so I think everybody knew before I really did. So, uh, yeah, and it wasn't an issue. My mum was great. Uh, I remember she tried to start a dialogue with me. um, And (coughs) what she said was, you know, you're my daughter and I love you. And it doesn't matter to me, you know, what you do, because I will always love you and always be my daughter. And I thought, "Mm, I'm not ready for that conversation with her just yet. (laughs) When was that? How old were you? Uh, I was about 19 then, yeah. Did you always knew? I think I kind of knew from when I was about four because uh, I remember telling my mum when I was about four that when I grow up I'm going to marry a lady and she, she started laughing and she said, oh, you, you can't, if you're a lady you've got to marry a man, if you're a man you've got to marry a lady and I said, but I thought people could marry who they wanted and she said, yes, they can and then she kind of went, well when you get older you'll understand it and I thought, okay, maybe she knows something I don't know but I, I, I got older and I still didn't understand it. So what was this school years? Was, how did you deal with that during your school years? Um, I think when I was at school, I was really focused on schoolwork. 
because I wanted to get an education. I wanted to get some qualifications. I knew that there, I wasn't going to grow up and get married and someone was going to look after me and I'd live happily ever after. I knew that, that I would have to <coughs> support myself. And so I was really focused on school. I was very, I was very um, involved in school and I worked really hard, got my exams, got a place at teach training college. Um, <coughs> I do remember uh, when I was about 15 or 16, my sister wanted to go out and stay out late and my mum wouldn't let her. And she said, my sister said, well, how comes Rosie's allowed to stay out late and I have to come home at 10 o'clock? And my mum said, um, because I know Rosie's not going to come home in trouble. But by that, I think she meant I wouldn't, wasn't going to come home pregnant. So I think from then she knew um, that I was not interested in boys and, um, and that I wasn't going to go and, you know, get married and have loads of kids. So and it was never actually said, like I say, until that time when my mum made that comment to me when I was about 19, it was never actually said, but I think it was known. Mm. Do you remember your first kind of maybe romantic encounter? Yes, I do. I was... <laughs> <laughs> yes, <coughs> I was um, I was at school and the head girl, somebody I liked a lot from from way back years back when I was in like first or second year at school, secondary school, and um, I won't say her name because she probably won't want to be outed because I think as far as I know now she's she's straight and married, but um, I had a real thing about her and I didn't realise that she liked me too until she picked me as a prefect. And because, um, you know, head girls used to pick their own prefects. And so we kind of got closer and closer. And I remember she came round to my house uh, one day and we were in the bedroom listening to records because you listened to records in those days. And I suddenly had this huge urge to kiss her and thought, oh, I can't do that because she'll just freak out, you know. So I, I, we were both sitting on the bed at the time. So I got off the bed and I went over to the sink and I <coughs> put my hands under the cold tap. I was trying to cool myself down because I felt really hot. And she said, why did you do that? And I thought, I'm going to tell you the truth. So I said, because I had this irresistible urge to kiss you. And I, and I was worried that, you know, it would cause a problem. And she said, well, why don't you try it? <laughs> and I was like, what? So we ended up kissing and we ended up having a, a really strong love affair. You know, if you can say that's what it was. I mean, I was 17, so... She was 18, she was, we, she was in the upper six, and I was in the lower six. And, um, and I did notice that in our school in the sixth form block, there were quite a few couples, women, girl couples, because it was an all-girls all school. And there were a number of couples that I'd started noticing, thinking, oh, well, maybe Virginia and Carol are a couple, you know, because they seemed to be close, or sitting down and uh, holding hands. It was all very innocent. But it was, um, yeah, it was definitely. So I remember one evening we waited till everybody had gone out the sixth form block and we started kissing in the, in the sixth form common room. And the curtains were open and to my horror, I looked to the side and the uh, lollipop man was standing at the window <laughs> watching us. And I thought, oh my God, he's going to go and report us to the head teacher now. We're in dead trouble. But he never said anything. You know, um, so, yeah, so that's that's kind of like how that started. And then she went off to teach training college somewhere up north and um, 
the relationship ended. But I, I was really upset about that because I wanted us to c continue having a relationship sort of like a long distance on, but she wasn't up for that. And uh, so that was my first encounter. When I was 17, she was 18. She was the, pre the head girl and I was the prefect. <laughs> and um, you, you talked about your mum. Was there any, anyone else around in your family? Was it just um, no, I had a sister. Uh, I had two brothers. And then when my mum remarried, when I was 12, uh, she had another child, another daughter called Linda. Yeah. And how were they when... Um, my brother Frank was great. He, he never had an issue with it. Neither did my sister Jean. My sister Linda was a little bit too young, so I don't know how old she was when she kind of realised. And, uh, yeah, I never really had much to do with my brother John, so, you know, but I'm sure he knew. I'm sure everybody did, mm -hmm. you know. But it didn't seem to be a problem, and I never felt like... Um, uh, maybe I was too thick-skinned, but I didn't feel any prejudice at that time. You know, I, I was so, it, you know, involved in myself, you know, as you are when you're a teenager, uh, a young adult. So I don't think I actually was aware of any real prejudice at that time. Um, <coughs> I do know that when I went off to teach training college, we were having a a meeting, the students were having a, a meeting, and one of the guys in the college um, stood up in, in this NUT meeting, no, NAT, it was a students' union anyway, and he, he outed himself, and he said, you know, I'm, I'm gay, and what does, you know, what's the union gonna do for me? And I thought that was very brave of him, but I did notice that a lot of people distanced themselves from him after that, so I thought, if that's what happens when you come out, I'm not doing it. Not here, anyway. Not not at college. Mm. So um, he did have some uh, in a small, cr close unit of friends, but it, I think he, he made a mistake by making that disclosure so public in the way that he did it. What year was that? Uh, oh, crikey. Mm. I went to teach training college 1974, so it'd be 74, 75, something like that. Wow, okay. Mm. Mm. And when did, you, <coughs> when did you finish? So did you, you went out then? Yeah, n uh, no, and I finished my teacher training when I was uh, in 2000, um, sorry, 1977. Um, I do remember also on my 21st birthday, my mum and the rest of my family organised a birthday party for me and I invited all my friends and they were all lesbians. <laughs> no one said anything. You know, it was just, um, we had a great time, you know, and uh, yeah. So it, it was kind of, in a way, it was it was kind of innocent. It it wasn't really. It wasn't really an issue, I suppose, until I. Until I started working as a as a teacher, I think then I started thinking to myself, um, you need to not be so obvious about your sexuality. And I started work as a PE teacher, so that was great because I could wear my PE kit to school and no one said anything. I was always in a tracksuit and a whistle around my neck. So um, <clears throat> so I kind of looked like a gym teacher. But I think had I been a classroom teacher, it would have been, would have been a problem. Just my appearance, just by, by my appearance. Mm. And those are the days of Section 28, right? Yes. So yeah. Well, that was a little bit later, but yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Oh, okay. Comes out, yeah, comes out yeah. later. Yeah. But how did, how did, did you actually, did you feel ever, did you feel the effects of that? Mm. Um, not in my own personal life, but I did notice it. And around about that time when Clause 28 was out, I was um, doing some singing with a group of um, people called the Pink Singers. And we, we did lots of lesbian and gay songs. Or we travelled all over Europe. We went all over America sort of singing with other lesbian and gay choirs. It was a, a phenomenal thing to do because um, <coughs> immediately I had a huge group of people, like-minded gay and lesbian women and men, and um, we were doing lots of concerts for things like the he uh, ha um, uh, Higgins Trust, you know, because there, there was an awful lot of... Um, um, prejudice, particularly against gay men, because of the um, because of AIDS, mm -hmm. and um, and I remember thinking, you know, we've got to do something. We've got to do something to raise, put it out there, raise the level of awareness about it. And uh, so that's what we did. And we I, I joined that choir, and we travelled all over singing, and that was really, in a way, a good thing to do because it, it was very affirming, you know. So I was surrounded by lesbian gay people. So for me, they were my friends. You know, that was my life. And um, and it felt very positive because of all that, because of what we did. We did lots of, like we, I remember we did a show at the London Palladium and people like Lenny Henry and, and Ruby Wax and Je Jennifer Saunders and uh, Dawn French. We, we did, we did um, perform at the London Palladium with a load of other people and it was all in support of the Terence Higgins Trust to raise money and we had lots of famous people, you know, joining in and, and, and it was great because it was putting it out there but we, we felt like um, it was being done in a way that was, um, it, it wasn't, um, the, the prejudice of going around at the time was pretty awful. It was a hostile environment, you know, especially if you were a gay man and, and as a lesbian I felt, you know, these guys are my brothers and they're not standing on this alone, you know. And so we were there with them as well. But um, <clears throat> it, things like gay plague, they would say, and, oh, uh, you know, it's a gay plague and they deserve it. And, um, you know, it, 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 was, it was a hostile environment and people felt okay to make comments. You know, it, was, it wasn't unheard of for people to be quite abusive. And I remember one um, particular event we went to it was a women's meeting in, at some school and we had gone there to talk about, you know, positive action. Uh, it was a conference kind of thing over a weekend. And I went outside at one point to smoke a cigarette because I used to smoke in those days. And I noticed a, a, quite a large gathering of young males. And as I went outside, I, I could hear them sort of starting to jeer, jeering and word must have got around that the lesbians were meeting at this school because um, they were jeering, they were spitting, they were throwing empty cans of beer. So I went back in, I said, listen, we're in trouble, we're being surrounded. And they're like, what are you talking about? You know? <clears throat> After a while, we noticed that there'd become more and more of them. There was about 200 young men, mostly guys, uh, outside these, this school congregating, waiting for us to come out, waiting for us to come out of the building. Which area was that? I, I can't remember, I think it might have been Hackney, it was in North London somewhere. Right, and, it, and this is in... Like, in, in London. Which year? Uh, uh, it was around about the time of Clause 28. I mean, this right. is one of the things that we were, uh, we were, why we were getting together, what yeah. are we going to do? Sure. And um, anyway, we, we realised we were actually, like it was a siege, we were under siege. 
Um, so we rang the police. Um, two hours it took them to, we said what was happening. We couldn't leave because, you know, every time we went anywhere near the, the front entrance, we started getting all these jeers and whatever. And it was quite a large, hostile group of men. You know, young young males. It, there wasn't old people there or anything, but 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 they were hostile and they were they were waiting for us to come out. And we felt that if we went outside, we were either going to get beaten up or at least we'd have to run the gauntlet of getting past them. And they were doing foul things like using foul language, using insulting language, being quite abusive, spitting, you know, throwing empty cans of beer. So it, it wasn't it wasn't the kind of environment I was willing to step into to get home. <laughs> okay, thank you. So anyway, someone rang the police, it took them two hours to get there. Two hours we were stuck, like under siege conditions, before they actually came along and dispersed these, these guys so that we felt safe to actually walk out. So that was what it was like in those days. You could be attacked. You could be treated like, like that. And it was all part of the course, you know. The fact that the police took two hours to get to us to disperse them showed what a level of priority we were. We weren't. We weren't a priority level at all. So, um, yeah, so that, that, was, that was pretty awful. Um, but I think having that, having all those friends from the, the, the choir or from the women's groups or whatever, in a way, that, that was quite affirming and it was quite, it, it gave you kind of sense of camaraderie, like we were in this together. You know, we, 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 we had each other's back and that we couldn't have survived it without that. I don't know how anybody would have done it on their own. I have no idea how anybody would have survived stuff like that on their own. I remember coming, uh, we used to go, go to a club in uh, Bramerton Street, it was called The Gateways in Chelsea. It was made quite famous by the Killing a Sister George film. Uh, <coughs> I used to go there and uh, one evening, a woman went out, left the club, and got a bottle in her face. Some guy, two guys attacked her, put a bottle in her face. She had 23 stitches. After that incident, we were all warned, right, you go out in threes. You don't go out in twos, because two's not enough. Even if you, you know, you, you need three of you is the kind of a crowd. So leave in threes and walk each other to the cars, whatever. Just take care of each other and don't leave people on their own. And that was how we had to operate. It was scary. I remember another club I used to go to. This was over in Hearn Hill, and it was a mixed club of lesbian and gay men. Didn't have the transgender thing in those days. It was just lesbian and gay. That that um, that was the way we kind of thought of it. And um, <coughs> anyway, a lot of the the women that went to this this kind of club sort of dressed up in the sort of like the ties and the tuxedos and kind of quite you know ma masculine looking. I was one of them. And the guys that turned up were, were all dressed in frilly things and makeup and heels and everything, you know. And we used to get raided fairly regularly. Not for any, not, not because it was that we were doing anything illegal, but just because they could. You know, they could come and they could cause a problem and stomp around and whatever, you know, just show their, that they could do that to us. So we used to have a lookout. So um, when we were in the club, dancing, if, the, if, someone, if someone saw the police coming, the, the word would get back, the police are coming, so everyone would switch partners. Right? So all the women that were dressed in tuxedos and bow ties would be dancing with these guys who were dressed in frilly dresses. 
And, you know, it was, I remember one time we did that, we all swapped partners, the police came in, and you could see the looks on their face, like they weren't sure what was going on here, but they knew it wasn't right, you know, but they couldn't put the finger on it. We weren't doing anything wrong. Um, but it was, it was like that, you know, you, the, you could, you could be attacked, um, and the police, the, the question the police would ask you was, what did you do to provoke it? Plenty of times that happened. Lots of gay guys, lots of friends I know got attacked, beaten up just for being gay or because they asked the wrong guy or they looked the wrong way to somebody, beaten up. And it was always to do with, the, the, the response was always, well, what did you do? How, did you provoke it? What did you do? So, so there was no protection for us, really. There was no respect and it was a hostile environment. And so when I look at that, then and I look at today now I feel we've we won <laughs> no in a way I feel like we we did it we won because we we lived through that we fought through that we did it together we supported each other and now we're in a position where we can get married we can have children they're not going to be threatened of being taken away from you because you're a lesbian and that's used to happen you know people lost their children um you know, uh, the relationships were never valued. So if you were with the partner, same-sex partner, and you and, and um, you you lived in the same house, depending on who owned the house, you know, if um, if your partner died, your partner's family could come and take the property. You had no rights at all. As even though you were a lifelong companion or a partner, you had no rights at all. So um, you know, if 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 I was ill in hospital, my partner wouldn't be considered my family to come and see me you know it was it was like well you've got to be a relative you know so that we didn't have the respect or the recognition that we have now and it's all it, it's right that's what we should have that respect and that recognition mm. so i kind of feel that we've come a long way we fought the battle we won but the problem is that with that is there's nothing more to fight for <laughs> and everyone's gone Okay, that's it, and they sort of meld into the into the general population of society, and that kind of camaraderie, that kind of we got to stand together. It, it's not it's not there anymore. Well, I came to the island in two thousand and three with my partner, and um, one of the first things I did when I came to the island was I tried to find out, you know, where all the lesbian and gays and LGBT community was. And um, there was a lesbian and gay switchboard at the time, so I volunteered and worked on that and was also on the committee for it. So we used to get quite a lot of phone calls, people ringing up for th you know, events like what's happening, do you know if there's any clubs open, people that were visiting the island as well. A lot of the time they would say, oh, where's the best place to go on a Friday night? So we had all that information there and we'd give it out to people. Other times people would ring up for other things like they were having difficulties with whatever. And um, one of the things we did was we had, a, we had things on a website which advertised a lot of things. And every now and again, we would check the website just to see if it was okay. And a lot of the time, it was, it was blanked. It was all taken off. Like I used to go down to Shanklin Library and type in lesbian and gay events on the island, and it would be nothing there. So I brought it up at one of the meetings. I said, look. All the stuff that we we're advertising, it doesn't seem to, it doesn't appear to be on the computers in the library. It's all been blocked. It's blanked. 
So um, the chairman at the time, won't mention his name because it might not want to be mentioned, he went to the council, tried to find out what was happening and why was all our information not on the on the computer in the library. It's not available for anybody coming, you know, visiting, can go into the library, type in gay lesbian events and find information that was not there. Although we had put it forward, we put that information out. So we found out that they had filters on the computer. So any words that, they, that, that were considered to be, uh, you know, not acceptable, you know, say, you know, paedophile, um, gay was also on it. And so we tried to get that changed. The information went back on the computer again. A few weeks later, I went back to Shanklin li Library, checked it, it was all taken off again. So we had this battle going on constantly. We're trying to get our information out to, to the island, basically. And, and also because people that were visiting the island, you know, their first main port of call would be the library to, to type in any events, of, you know, find out what was happening. So that wasn't, you know, we found out that that was actually being, we were being discriminated against in a really insidious way because when we challenged it, they had no recourse but to put it back. But as soon as our backs were turned, it was taken off again. So that was, a, that was really quite difficult. And uh, eventually we, we, the Lesbian and Gay um, Switchboard lost our fund, we lost the funding, so we no longer had that. Don't know why that happened. Maybe we made too much of a fuss, I don't know. But anyway, we were disbanded. Um, and from then on, it did seem to be a lot more difficult to get in contact with other lesbian and gay groups on the island. In fact, we ended up going to Portsmouth to go for a disco. They used to have a, a disco over in Portsmouth uh, once a week, and we ended up going there because all the places on the island gradually slowed down and were just closed. And there didn't seem to be any reason for that. Was that public funding? I don't know. I, I, I was too new to the island to know how things worked. Mm. All I did know was that when I first arrived on the island, it was quite a thriving lesbian and gay community. And within a few years, that was all gone. Um, the other thing I wanted to do was I wanted to, I wanted to check I wanted to find out, because the law had been changed, the law which gave us rights and gave us the right not to be discriminated against, long time waiting for that, but we got it, the right to get a civil partnership, the right to get married, all those things came in, and I wanted to check to see whether or not it was being operated, you know, whether or not it was, it was real. And so one of, the, one of the things I did to find out, this might sound a bit silly, but I, I, I applied to join the, the, the police service, uh, join the police force. Uh, I went along, did my interviews, uh, they asked things about equal opportunities, I had an opportunity to mention my sexuality um, and did all the other things too. Passed all the tests and the maths and the written words, whatever, and the physical, and got into the police force. And I was, I was with the police uh, for two and a half years. And I have to say, I was, I was so impressed with the way I felt they had made so many changes in terms of outlook and attitude. You know, I can remember when the police force was a hostile thing, that you could be, that you could be arrested, you know, just because you're walking around the street, you know, as a, as a lesbian or gay person, you could be arrested for that. They'll find a reason, but, you know, that would be the reason they would, be, they would, they would approach you. But um, 
I was so so impressed with how far they'd come. I went on to the training courses. They have these training courses once a month for a weekend. We did six months, so six weekends. Um, and they did things like um, diversity, awareness, uh, cultural differences. I, I, I was so impressed with how far they had come. And there were so many lesbian and gay people in the police force as well, and openly. And no one seemed to to mind. It was like, yeah, okay, so-and-so's gay. Yeah, he's a cool guy, you know. Um, there were loads of lesbians in the police service either. Whether they were out or whether they weren't, I don't know. But it seemed to be a completely different place than I had experienced years ago. So I was I was kind of nicely impressed with... They, they had a lot of um, training which, which gave you... Um, like, for example, they would have these trainings once a month and you would go and you would do all this stuff about diversity, about lesbian and gay, about equal opportunities, about the law with regard to, you know, how people should be treated respectfully. doesn't matter of their colour, doesn't matter of their, their, their gender, doesn't matter of their sexuality. Um, and, and so all this stuff was being presented to all these police officers. So I felt that the machinery was there in place, the training was there in place, and what it really needed was, was for it to filter through. And it was filtering through, slowly but surely, bit by bit, you know. It was all that stuff's been filtering through. So I was kind of nicely surprised with the way that the police have, I don't know, changed, developed, progressed, mm -hmm. you know, to the point where um, there's no more... I didn't feel there was, there was so, more, so much more discrimination there anymore I just felt yeah everyone's just you know getting on with it and 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 making space for everybody else and and um, acceptance and and tolerance was was all there and so if anybody did step out of line or make a comment um, either I or another person would challenge that and they'd say actually you can't say that you can't use that terminology it's offensive what makes you think that's okay it's not you know and um, so, a few times, silly little things, uh, mostly from the young males, I would say, where, where you'd get it from. And I think partly that was to do with maybe they felt a little bit threatened by gay men, I don't know. Or they weren't completely satisfied with their own sexuality. But they would make sort of comments like, keep your backs, keep your backs, to, keep your backs to the wall, lads, you know. And, and I'd say, you don't need to say that. What's that about? What does that mean? What are you trying to say? sort of put them on the spot and it was like well they couldn't really say anything because what they had said was actually quite offensive but they turned it into a sort of like a jokey thing but it wasn't a joke it's not a joke and I didn't let them get away with it and if I was with anybody else um, that other person would also chat we wouldn't allow that kind of thing to be to be there as an everyday thing if it did come up it was challenged straight away and I think that's the right thing to do you know just to put them on the spot and say what does that mean? What do you mean by that? Because then they have to think about what they said, what their intention was, where that came from. That was a prejudice. That was a discrimination. That's not pro that's not proper treatment. You know. So, and I felt that the, the the police force itself backed us with that because of all the training that we were given. We were given so much training and so much assistance and so and, and, and so so it, it felt like we had a voice. It felt like 
I could challenge something because I had the backing of this machinery that was giving us all this training, which was filtering down through to the grassroots. So that was that was useful. Would you say <coughs> maybe it's a, it's a difficult question because but it's interesting to see what were the those you know the young policemen's how they were behaving in at work and how mm. they were behaving off work. Whether yeah. I don't know. I, I didn't socialise with them off work. I just know that um, within the police service, within the police force, there was a, a huge lev level of awareness about diversity and, and it was mainstream. It was mainstream awareness. So these, these young lads were actually the odd ones out, whereas in the past they would have been the usual, it would have been okay. Now it, was, now it felt like it was becoming like, you can't actually say that. You can't you can't get away with saying that. What what year was that when you? Uh, oh crikey, uh, I was fifty one, and I'm oh now. So it was about fifteen years ago. <laughs> uh, no, I did policing on the island. Yeah, right. so mostly in Newport and part partly as well in Ryde, but um, a lot of the time we were dealing with we were working for our shifts were working from 11 at night till three in the morning so you can guess what we were dealing with a lot of the time was dealing with a lot of drunk people um but occasionally you know a day shift came up and and that would be nice that you'd go along to uh, a meeting with you'd have all the sort of different groups coming to sort out um like what difficulties they might be having with certain groups of people so some of the clubs would get together and say well we've had a problem with these people so far and everyone would share information. Uh, that was quite useful. Um, yeah, but a lot of the time we were working late shifts. And was there any any LGBT clubs at the time? Hmm. There were some, but most of them had, uh, like I said, migrated to the to the mainland. Really. Yeah. Yeah, because when I first came to the island, there were a number. There was a, a place around the corner from here called the Plough and Barley Corn, where they used to have a lesbian and gay night every Friday. And we used to go, you know, because it was nice. Um, there were quite a few clubs in Ride, uh, but gradually, bit by bit, they just seemed to disappear. And I don't know whether, you see, I could be suspicious and think, well, perhaps the council squeezed them out. I don't know, but I do know that the that the um, the amount of places for lesbian and gay people and people of um, LGBT groups. Um, have been reduced considerably from when I first came to the island in 2003. Do you think that could be because we are so ingrained in normal society now that you know our rights to equality, that people yeah. feel that they don't need those special places? Anymore? That was one of the things that had occurred to me that we, you know, we'd won so well that we we just sort of you know we 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 lost the fight we 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 don't need to fight anymore so there's nothing to fight for so that's partly or partly I don't know I don't know maybe we are a bit apathetic mm. maybe we are not doing enough for ourselves maybe we should be out there making spaces for each other yeah I don't know or or, or I don't know yeah it could be technology because a lot of people do things online now don't they um, I'm not one for that. But um, but I think maybe that's partly it as well that people just hook up online, you know, so they don't need the 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 places to go to meet people. Personally, myself, I like to go and meet people face to face. 
and get to know somebody and maybe you know like when I was on in London with the pink singers we would sing we had that in common but we'd also do other stuff together as well meet outside of the choir too um you know uh, I, I had a uh, was a member of a theatre group called Slip of the Tongue. It was a lesbian theatre group. Again, we did stuff um, where we would meet up and go and see a play together or, you know, um, stuff like that. So there doesn't seem to be that on the island here. And maybe it's because it's a very small place. Maybe it's because there's too much apathy am amongst the LGBT group here on the island. I don't know. Yeah, it was a theater, lesbian theatre group and we used to put on productions and, um, you know, we would write the plays ourselves, we would have our own, make our own scenery, you know. So even people who didn't want to be in the play itself or, or we'd sing songs and get musicians in to do the music, there would always be something for someone to do, whether it's stage management or whether it was, you know, building the scenery or whether it was printing tickets. So everyone got involved who wanted to. What year is this? This is before I came to the island, so <coughs> it would have been, I came to the island in 2003, so it had been some time before that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what, what role did you have? In oh, uh, well, partly I was, partly writing, but um, I was also the musical director, because I do play a few instruments, and so they, they um, <laughs> thought, well, she plays the guitar, better stick her in as the musical director, so I was, and I did that for a while. And that was a lot of fun. Um, the other thing that we did, was there was another group called Hiking Dykes. Have you heard of those? They used to go for long walks, so we'd meet up, you know, once a month and go for a walk, you know, right, m maybe around Hampstead Heath or wherever, um, you know. And who would take the leadership on those organising days? I don't know, because, you know, you would just sort of ring up the contact person and they'd say, oh, yeah, we're meeting for hike Hiking Dykes, a meeting on blah, blah day at such and such a time, bring walking boots and something for the weather. If I knew, if I could remember a walk, I'd probably lead one. But, you know, I'm so bad at finding my way around, I'd probably end up getting everybody lost. So, uh, yeah, but it would be a nice thing to do, to have some hiking dikes on the island, you know, mm -hmm. and do, do that. I know a bunch of us get together in the summertime sometimes and, and go camping, um, but that's for a different reason, you know. We, um, we go camping and meet there. Um, in memory of somebody who died. She was um, a, a lovely lady and she, she got cancer. She was a lesbian and a very good friend and um, she died a few years ago. And so what we do once a year now is all her friends get together once a weekend, once a year and just camp because that's something that Sarah liked to do. She liked camping. And so it's a way of remembering her and honoring her memory and just meeting up all her friends meeting up for a weekend and just remembering her and her lovely, lovely person that she was. She was the first person that really befriended me when I came to the island because um, I remember I'd been taken to the Plough and Barleycorn by Jean. She was with a con contact with the women. And <coughs> she, she left me in there and w she introduced me to everybody and they're all sat around and they all knew each other. I didn't know anybody. So I was feeling a little bit kind of not anxious, but I was feeling a little bit out of it because I didn't know anyone. And they were all chatting and, and they weren't being horrible or anything. They weren't leaving me out for any particular reason. It's just that they didn't know me. And I had been dumped there by Jean, you know. <laughs> um, anyway, I was sitting in the plough and barley corn thinking, you know, how, how can I leave without being, you know, you know, I wanted to leave basically, sort of make my excuses and go. And then Sarah came in 
uh, I didn't know her name then, but she came in to the Plan Barley Corn. She looked across at the group of us that were sitting there. And she looked at me and she said, ah, oh, a new face. And she marched straight over to me, sat down next to me and started chatting. And I thought, what a lovely person you are. You know, she just saw a new face and came in and started chatting to me. And that was my first introduction to, to Sarah. So, yeah, God bless her soul. Because I came to the island with a partner as well. That's the other thing. I mean, I came here with a partner. So we kind of had our own little life and group of friends that we made. And most of them were couples. Um, so we kind of, in a way, had a bit of an insulated, in maybe false existence. Because we all met around each other's houses and we had you know meals out or went to the theatre and stuff like that so uh, this year my partner and I broke up well she broke up with me well we, we it was mutual but yeah, it was her idea <laughs> I went along with it but it, it wasn't my decision um, and since then I've kind of noticed how isolated you can be as a lesbian on the island without having a partner you know it's uh, it's a lot more difficult. So I almost feel like I need to start from scratch again. Need to start from the beginning, make new friends. Because the friends I had, there was nothing wrong with the friends I had, but they were our mutual friends, and so none of them contacted me, which I'm not complaining about. They probably don't want to take sides or don't want to get involved. I don't know. But uh, so I just feel like I need to start all over again, re reinvent myself, recreate myself, recreate a network for myself. So. I'm kind of in the process of doing that at the moment. So how are you finding it? Um, is it, is it football? Yeah, uh, I, the, the women's, the white, is it white women's? The, the, the white, out on the island? Out on the island. The group that meets at Bar 74. Yeah, what are they the called? LGBT women, yeah. Yeah, okay. They've been very welcoming. They have been lovely. They've made me feel like I fit just right in there. You know, it's been lovely. Yeah, they've been kind, been welcoming, invited me out to stuff. So I feel like I've got some kind of um, a place, you know, um, where I'm, well, I feel welcome. I can meet new people, have a chat, not feel so isolated. Just makes you feel a bit more like you're, in, you're connected. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that, that's, I'm, I'm doing that at the moment. I don't know, because um, I go to London fairly regularly. And I do notice the difference in London. People seem to have more get up and go. Like there's always something happening somewhere, you know. Whereas on the island, there's hardly anything happening anywhere, you know. Um, once a month, something might happen. Or once a fortnight, something will happen. But uh, if I went to the, when, you know, when I go back to London, uh, I've got so many things to do and so many different places to go. As a lesbian person, I feel I walk into lots of different spaces all the time and it's and it's fine and I feel great. You know, I go to the Pink Jukebox, which is a, a lesbian and gay dance group. Um, I always feel very welcome. People come up, they, oh, welcome. You, you know, you've not been here before. These are the dances that we're doing. If you need a partner, just ask, mm -hmm. you know. Um, that kind of thing doesn't happen on the island. Not so, no, not so noticeably anyway. Because I do notice the difference when I walk into a place in London, a lesbian and gay space or LGBT space in London, I feel relaxed, I feel at home, I feel like, oh, thank God, there's other lesbian and gay people around me, you know, this feels good. And they, and it's so ordinary, it's not, it's not anything unusual. So people are very friendly, very welcoming, very inclusive. 
I went recently at Christmas to a dance over at um, the Riverside. It was organised, a lesbian gay event. And uh, nothing wrong with it. It was The music was nice. It was all Christmas music. Lots of people came. They all knew each other. I didn't know anybody. <laughs> so I thought, well, as I'm here and as the music's nice, I do like dancing. So I just got up and danced. And I danced by myself. And I had a nice time. But I was beginning to think, um, you know, like, am I invisible? Does anybody actually see me? You know, I mean, the, the guy at the bar was very chatty and I, I, uh, he was very kind and made me a cup of tea because I was driving, so I didn't want to take any alcohol. And um, so that was fine. But I just felt a little bit like, I'm sure they know I'm here alone, you know, because I'm obviously dancing on my own. Anyway, it was about halfway through the evening. There were two guys sitting on a table near the door and one of them sort of waved to me, and I thought he was waving to somebody behind me. I looked around to see if there was anybody behind me, and there wasn't. So I, I pointed, waving at me. He said, yes, yes. So, <laughs> so I went over, and they, he introduced himself. Very nice, two, two, two guys. And they said, we noticed that you're on your own. I said, thank God. I said, because I was beginning to think I was invisible. I said, that, you know, it's a lovely venue here and everything, but I, I, didn't, I don't know anybody. So they said, yeah, it can be a bit like that sometimes. And they were chatting to me for a little while. And they were very friendly. And, and I felt more relaxed. And I felt like I belonged somewhere in this little corner with these two guys, which were very sweet of them, um, to notice that I was on my own. And that you know, it would have been nice for s somebody to invite me to join them. But you can't invite yourself. You know, you can, <laughs> you can look sad and, sad and lonely, but you can't invite yourself to people's tables and introduce yourself and say, may I join you? You know, I wouldn't do that. So, but it was very nice for those two guys to um, to actually invite me over. So that was nice. But that kind of thing doesn't happen in London. Like when you go to London, it doesn't matter who you are. If you're walking on your own or walking with a crowd, I always feel welcome. You know, people always say, oh, hello, I haven't seen you before. You know, and they seem to be happy to, you know, introduce themselves and, and, and converse with you and whatever it is you're there for, whatever activity to involve you in it. Whereas here on the island, it's a little bit more reserved, mm. I'd say. A little bit more conservative. I use a small C for conservative, not, not capital C, but small C. But it can be a little bit more conservative and a little bit more reserved. And so, yeah, you're right. And it may be something to do with the fact that it's a beautiful island, but it's, it's, it's very rural. You know, I don't want to be, you know, prejudiced against rural places because they are beautiful but maybe the attitudes are different i don't know maybe there's less diversity so there's less awareness i don't know and also i think the pool of people are smaller because when you in london you, you you might go to um, an event which is maybe a singing event or a dancing event there's always loads of people there because they come from all over london they've all heard about this event and so they all turn up whereas on the island because there's less people and it's more sparsely populated you know, you turn up to th something and there's only half a dozen people there. You feel a little bit like, hmm, I wish I could be in a bit of a crowd, you know. Uh, did you experience Pride in any way? I did, I did. And I, and I really enjoyed the Pride. Um, I, I, I did think, though, that we were kind of herded a little. We had this sort of narrow corridor where this gay Pride event took place and the beach was was cordoned off and I was a bit upset about that because I thought to myself wouldn't it be nice to just walk along the beach and take my shoes off and walk in the sand and enjoy this wonderful atmosphere but we were kind of in a way restricted to this very tight narrow corridor which I felt was a bit overcrowded mm -hmm. it was too there was too many people in a very small space 
and there was a completely empty beach where we could have had a lot more space. People have sat down, had a picnic, you know, would have made it a bit more that enjoyable. Was the first one. That was the first one, yeah. And the second one, they opened the beach. I didn't go to the second one, I have yeah. to say. I didn't go to the second one, yeah. But it's interesting, on that very first Pride, I was there with my little um, flag waving it around and I had some friends around me and stuff. And I saw somebody that I know from a different, um, a, a different um, event thing. She's not a lesbian, she's a straight woman and her husband. So I waved hello and she came, oh, she said, very nice to meet you here and glad to see you've got your flag. She was very friendly. And then <coughs> her husband started making some, I thought was quite offensive comments, like he was saying that, um, you know, um, um, having sex with children, a lot of these men have sex with children. And I said, I beg your pardon? You know, and he said, well, they're all paedophiles, aren't they? I said, I, I said, I don't think so. I said, paedophiles are heterosexual as well, you know. You know, I was actually quite shocked that he was trying to say that, um, that gay men are paedophiles when I'm thinking to myself, no, they're not. That's not, I said, but that's actually not gay. I said, a lot of straight men are, uh, have sex with children, young girls. You know, I said, it's not a gay thing. Um, but anyway, she sort of ushered her husband out of the way and off, you know, he obviously wasn't, yeah, he, he obviously didn't understand at all what he was saying or how, realised even how offensive he was. She knew, and so she ushered him out of the way. But I, that was the only thing that I thought to myself, I'm really sorry I bumped into them now. <laughs> I think it's lovely that we have it, and I think that, because um, when I remember years ago, the very first Pride I ever went to, it was about 2,000 people, and there was no advertising of it. Um, we walked through streets, people stared. Um, it was something that was, you know, it was, oh, look at that, that weird lot walking through, you know, and some of the guys were dressed in dresses, some of the girls were dressed in, you know, sort of tuxedos and things. And so people were looking at us as if we were very strange. That improved over the years to the point where you've got 250,000 people you know, merging at, at Marble Arch, ready to walk along the embankment and then have your party and wherever it was. Um, and so that grew to that and it became, it became an event that people, that people started to celebrate. And not just gay people, not just lesbians, not just transgendered people and bisexuals. It was something that they brought friends and family to. Um, that was really nice to see that, to see, to see family supporting someone and coming along and turning up. Um, yeah, that was nice. But, but here on the island, it's still very much in its infancy. It's still sort of like, it's, it's, still, it's still kind of growing. It hasn't grown into that, I think, acceptable space. And what made me think that was the way we were all herded in that little corridor, that very first Pride, which is why I didn't go to the second one. Maybe I'll go to the next one, see how it works out. Because, um, you know, by being restricted in this very small corridor, it almost felt like we were being contained and we were being tolerated. And this was the space we were allocated. And uh, anything out of that space, you know, you were in the wrong place. So to open it up, yeah, it would be a good thing. Were you involved at all with any of, you know, the, the organisations? No, I, I wasn't. Funnily enough, I wasn't. I just enjoyed the event. I, I enjoyed going. The Pink Singers turned up. I met some old friends there. Um, uh, we just chatted and things. It was it was just a really lovely event. It was a really lovely event, and the sun was shining too. 
and there was a beer tent. <laughs> you couldn't ask for more. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, I was brought up Catholic, and of course Catholics, you know, there's a lot of sin in Catholic. I'm a recovering Catholic now. I, 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 don't, I don't go to church anymore. But I did have a struggle for a while, um, especially in my sort of teenage times and, and early young adult times, when I kind of had that faith and that belief in that religion, um, but it was telling me something negative about myself. And I remember struggling with this really, really a lot. You know, my conscience was struggling with it because I kept thinking to myself, you know, God doesn't want me. I'm not, I'm against the laws of nature. You know, God, God will, will, I'm abomination. That's what I, I was told, you know. Um, so I remember one day I, um, I spoke to this lady who was a nun. She was a lovely pers person, really, really kind. And I thought to myself, I'll ask Sister Dolores because she's very wise and I'm going to tell her how I'm feeling and, and what this is about because I was struggling so much with it. I didn't know who to ask. Um, so anyway, I, I, I spoke to Sister Dolores and I said to her, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm against the laws of nature because the Bible says so. And she looked at me and I could see there was a lot of... Um, compassion in her face and she looked at me and she said you know Rosa anything that exists exists because the laws of nature say so and nothing can exist outside those laws and there was a silence and I looked at her and I thanked her because she kind of in a way had given me permission to be myself and had told me that I was not outside the laws of nature that, that God made me as I am. Um, so that made it a lot more comfortable for me, although the rest of the church hadn't, didn't have that same, same view. Uh, Sister, De Sister Dolores was obviously a lady well before her time, but I did make a decision at some point that I would leave the church, that it wasn't the place for me to feel, because although they often said things like, yes, we welcome you and we accept you, but you mustn't practice. So I felt I was already being forced to, to be celibate, which wasn't my choice. That wasn't my choice. And so they would accept me as long as I didn't behave in a way that they would feel that I was doing something wrong. So I made the decision um, I was going to leave the church, and I did. And I haven't regretted it. And I still respect people's beliefs if they want to believe it. Um, you know. And I think the church has actually moved a long way now because I think they're no longer saying you can't practice. I think they're now accepting lesbian and gay people. I think they're actually accepting, um, uh, you know, gay people in the church as, you know, as, as they would anybody else. There was a time when they wouldn't. You know, there was a time when you had to hide. There was a time that you couldn't speak. You couldn't say this. You could only say it in confession and you were given a penance. So, <clears throat> so it's actually changed a lot more now, but I've outgrown it. I, I don't feel the need for that anymore. Although I do have a spiritual life. And I look at nature and I, you know, dabble in a little bit of, dip, dip, dip into different things like a bit of Buddhism here and a bit of Quaker there and a bit of, you know, whatever, whatever I feel philosophy supports my own outlook. Um, so I get my spiritual nourishment from that, but I, I, I wouldn't go back to the church. Was there a time when you ever felt uncertain, say, as a lesbian, you mean, or just yeah. as a woman, or uh, yeah, as, um, as, as a lesbian, 
No, not as a lesbian, no. I have uh, uh, on occasion felt unsafe because of my colour. I, I felt um, a little bit kind of backed away from. But then you see uh, a friend, another friend of mine, she's white, but she's Irish. And she said she notices that as soon as she opens her mouth, people back away from her. It's almost like they realise she's Irish. So there is a little bit of, um, I would say, shallow thinking in some people. Yeah. But I don't let it bother me. You know, if somebody doesn't like me because of my colour, that's their problem. I, it's not mine. Why would I take it on board? Well, you know, I wouldn't even try to change your mind. You know, if you want to have that prejudice, have it. It's yours to bear, not mine. It's your cross, not mine. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. But uh, uh, that's the thing I have noticed more than anything is, is the diversity of culture in, on the island is, is a little bleak. Whereas when I go to London, I just fit right in there because there's just so many different colours and so many different ways and so many different people. You know, you just fit right in. But on the island, I tend to feel a little bit like I stand out a bit more than I would like to for that reason. Yeah. But just get on with it. Have you ever felt like leaving the island? No, no, it's too beautiful. I love this place. I think it's beautiful. The beaches are lovely. The woods are gorgeous. The downs are really nice to walk along. A lot of the people are very friendly. They're, they're peaceful. It's a lovely place to be, you know. So despite the little angst that may arise from time to time, which would arise anywhere, wherever you go, you know, this is a beautiful place and I love it. This is like the jewel in the crown, this island. It's like the jewel in the UK. It's a beautiful place. It's so beautiful. I would never leave. Not, not unless they carry me off. <laughs> There was a book I read once. It wasn't a particularly good book. It was quite a boring book. But what attracted me to it was the title. It was written by a lady called Susan Jeffries, I think it was her name, the author. And the title of the book was Feel the Fear, But Do It Anyway. I've always lived by that because I think it's a great thing to do. It's a great, it's a great message. It's a very small message, but it means a huge thing. And I, I think to my little self, to my young self, I would say that, feel the fear, but do it anyway. You're very welcome. Yes, feel the fear, but do it anyway. That's an amazing motto to live by. Thank you, Rosa, for sharing such wonderful, enlightening memories. LGBTQ plus oral histories matter. And don't forget, follow, share, subscribe, connect with us visit www.outonanisland.co.uk or on our social media. You can find us at outonanislandiw. Hashtag our stories matter. In the next episode, Caroline Diamond talks to Jude Ashley Walker. Jude shares her memories of setting up Kenrick meetings on the island, her involvement with the gay social club events, particularly in the West White and loads more. Thanks for listening.